Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this and all the other episodes. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast and without them, I'd have quit long ago. Join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. It was my birthday on November the 30th, so as has become traditional, I have a present for you. You can use the code GUYTURNS49 to get £5 off any of my books at swordschool.shop or 30% off any course at courses.swordschool.com. The code will work until the end of December 2022. That's turns 49 all caps, all one word, at swordschool.shop and courses.swordschool.com. Most podcasts have sponsors who offer discounts to the listeners and money to the host. In the sword world, most of the companies and organisations offering products or services to sword people have tiny profit margins and precious little cash. So I thought I'd introduce a non-sponsor segment to the show where I call out producers of good sword stuff and recommend them to my listeners without getting paid for it. Of course, if your company is in that tiny overlap of having margins that allow for discounts and budget for sponsoring podcasts, and I can wholeheartedly and without reservation recommend you to my listeners, that last one is probably the killer, drop me a line at guy at guywindsor.com and we can talk. The first non-sponsor to the show is the themightywichtenauer.com, which is a gigantic reference source for everything historical martial arts. It's run by Michael Chidester, whom I interviewed in episode 21, and includes scans, transcriptions, translations, and articles, and just keeps getting better every day. I use it almost daily, and it's a simply astonishing resource. You can find it at wichtenauer.com. That's W-I-K-T-E-N. A-U-E-R dot com. Now, on with the show. I'm here today with Lisa Lucito, who is a sword mum, historical fencer, and an organising brain behind Lord Baltimore's challenge, as well as many other things which we'll get into in the show. So, without further ado, Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Guy. Um, it's nice to see you, or almost see you. We've had some technical troubles that I should just let the listeners be aware of. Let's fingers crossed that this one will work. Um, okay, so are you, <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things. Um, so whereabouts in the world are you? I am in Ellicott City, Maryland, near Baltimore. My home club is Maryland KDF. Okay, and what do you do at Maryland KDF? 
I mainly study German longsword and wrestling. Um, I have been gone for a little while because of pandemic. Our, our class uh, meets indoors. Uh, I also study Italian rapier and sword and buckler, both in HEMA and in the SCA. And I'm currently the recording secretary for the HEMA Alliance board. Okay, well, let's just jump in on that last one, because I don't know what it actually means. So what is the HEMA Alliance and what is the recording secretary of the board? Well, the recording secretary is kind of like the chair, but you pretend to be less important so people don't complain to you. <laughs> um, okay. So I run the meeting and, you know, make sure there are minutes and uh, make sure that we have, you know, kind of maybe not Robert's rules, but Bob's rules, you know, propose and second things and try to sound official and meet the legal Sorry, what, requirements. What, what, are, what are Bob's rules? Well, you know, Robert's rules of order. It can be a little cumbersome when there's only no, five of you in the room. So an abbreviated version is usually helpful. <laughs> okay. But I, I don't know what Robert's rules of order are. I've never heard of them. Oh, it's like just the process by which you uh, run formal meetings, the way um, whose turn it is to speak, how you propose things and second them and call things to a vote. And there's this little booklet that you're supposed okay. to run meetings by, but it's very cumbersome. <laughs> so, you know, I try to make it orderly, but a little bit more efficient with probably a little bit of okay. like Quaker consensus thrown in. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, you're in the right part of the world for it. Um, okay. So, so what, so what does the Humor Alliance do? Well, um, originally it really started to help uh, small clubs get insurance. Um, these days, uh, clubs are a lot more well-established. Many of them get insurance on their own. So recently we've been really focusing on supporting events and small clubs getting started. Uh, we've been doing some work recently at trying to gather a lot of resources to help people who are getting their own little baby club started. Okay. Um, that, that sounds like very interesting and worthy thing to do. Um, but so, but this is, this is behind the scenes stuff, isn't it? So like you're, you're yeah, working way behind the scenes. Other people can get some training done. I think I think this is this is kind of your thing. Yeah, I do prefer that. I mean, when Jake had when uh, Jake and uh, um, Marsters uh, had this job, they probably were a little more profile pro high. Ugh, were a little more high profile than I am. You're busy on the administrative side of things um but you did mention you train like 18 different kinds of sword plays so how on earth do you have time for all of that well it's usually i do them in small bits like i try to take time okay. like every year and i go out and spend time with jess finley um and i went out with her we work Good on the things that are in her wheelhouse uh I work with David Biggs. Um, he's been doing a little outdoor practice at his house on Sundays. So my rapier and my Italian sword and buckler happen with David. So I, I sort of like learn what the person in front of me is teaching more than anything else, rather than worry about how far down the path I get in any particular thing. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and it's, uh, it's an interesting way to do it because you do you have any actual long-term goals in the sword area or are you just enjoying the process of picking up the pieces you can pick up here and there? I am enjoying them. I mean, a lot of my long-term goals have had to adjust as I struggle more with uh, chronic illness. So it definitely makes you rework your priorities. And really, I think that it's keeping my body moving, keeping learning, and um, hearing what the people that I respect have to offer within the sword martial arts. Um, 
I jumped, I think, very quickly into realizing that there were some incredibly gifted and talented people um, out there teaching and trying to expose myself to a lot of what they have to offer has been one of the most rewarding parts of being in HEMA. Not what specific individuals do you not like, but what to you makes for a good teacher? Um, for me, it is someone who focuses on the skills involved in teaching, which is often a separate skill set from fencing. And some people are blessed to be able to do both. Um, and people who are able to differentiate instruction, I think, uh, are a real gift because uh, for a lot of us who are not good teachers, we have to teach people who are most like us or sort of teach to the middle people who can smoothly adjust things within a class for the different kinds of people that are within it are, I mean, I think it's a superpower. Ah, okay. I have to take issue with that because it's not a superpower. It's a skill that can be learned. It is. And I, I know this because I talk a lot of time on it. Uh, and one of the things that we're doing in the Hema Alliance right now is we're restructuring instructor certification is trying to focus more on how to teach people how to teach better rather than what they're teaching, giving them those how to teach skills. Right. And how to teach is a skill in itself. It's, it's, yes. And it can be applied to pretty much any, whatever it is you want to teach. If you know how to teach, you can teach that thing, I think. Yep. Yep. And I think for a long time that not got neglected. People were like, well, I don't want to learn from this person if they haven't won a million tournaments. And I was like, well, if they won a million tournaments, it doesn't tell me if they're good at teaching. Yeah. I want to learn from their teacher. Yeah. Um, okay. So you mentioned your training with chronic illness. Do you mind going into some detail about that and how it affects things? Because you know there may be people listening who are in a similar situation, and you might have something useful for them. Well, mine is sort of a mystery. I, you know, live in an area where I have access to a lot of specialists, and they haven't really been able to sort it out. But um, I have a lot of nerve pain, and I've been having trouble. Uh, with swelling in my extremities, um, especially my arms. And I have a really hard problem with bruising where I bruise like I'm an elderly person on blood thinner medication and the bruises turn black and I get these horrible calcifications. So my recovery time, particularly from like long sword tournaments, is very long. So I think that uh, long sword at a competitive level, I might be done for me. Um, so sword and buckler and rapier are still doing okay. I don't take, when I get hit, it's not in the same place and doesn't cause me the same trouble. Um, someday maybe they'll figure out that exact problem that's wrong with me. Um, right now we're not certain, but it's some sort of connective tissue or autoimmune disorder. But there are okay. a whole lot of people in HEMA now who are dealing with the same sort of thing. Um, and people starting to spend more time thinking about how to learn and train with the body you're in. Right. So do you have any like particular rules that you follow? Any sort of guidelines that tell you what to do and when? Well, my main guideline is like, it's so hard because I don't know how hard to push things, like what is going to be bad for me and what's not. So some days my body just says, oh, we're not having it today. Um, I've done a good job avoiding serious injury by just listening to when things are wrong and very early realized, oh, if I'm going to do stupid things like wrestling, um, when I have particular kinds of pain, I try to stop and figure out what I'm doing wrong. Um, I've gone to see some movement specialists sometimes and had um, 
physical therapy to just try to figure out how my movement might be putting me at risk of injury. Okay. So basically the, you could summarize that as listen to your body and do what it says. Yeah, pretty much. But although that's depressing some days when there's a lot of time that it, it doesn't want to do much. So, <laughs> so I do like to participate a lot in slow work, even when I'm not up to doing full speed things. Um, so for me, that's also a place where lets my brain work a little slower and I do a lot of my learning when things are stepped down. Well, yeah, it's one of the difficulties. If you're young and fit and strong and agile, you actually, it can be difficult to learn the art part of the martial art because you can get away with all sorts of shit just by being strong and fast and agile. But if you have these restrictions, it can actually make you look deeper for the, like the, the technique or the timing or whatever that makes it work effortlessly rather than making it work with sort of natural strength. Okay. Um, so tell us about your role in Lord Baltimore's Challenge. And just to kind of orient the readers, I've been to the last two Lord, Baltimore challenge, Lord Baltimore's Challenges, and it's a fantastic event. And it's basically the SCA and the historical martial arts people who I've never really thought of them as all that separate, but apparently they really quite are. And you have tournaments on the first day and classes on the second day and it all seems to work extremely well from my perspective as an invited guest, right? But I'm sure there's lots of scurrying going on behind the scenes. So what's it like? Well, David Biggs um, and a lot of my other rapier friends, I had been nudging them to come over and do things on the HEMA side um, and vice versa. But when someone's stepping totally over into the other culture, like a lot of times, at least at first, they're not, nobody's real comfortable. And David had said, I, especially because at least in our region of HEMA, uh, rapier was not as highly developed as it is in the SCA. So we really felt like if we made a separate thing, we could uh, show the art in a more advanced way. Um, the SCA isn't used to judging. HEMA doesn't do, until recently, hasn't been doing a lot of serious rapier study in this region. So they didn't have a lot of people to fence with to really inspire them to level up. Uh, you saw a lot of people using rapiers like long swords. So that was his idea to really get this started. Um, and, and you're right. It seems like it shouldn't be that different, but people pretend they are at the core. They really are not different at all. It's the same kind of people who love the same sorts of things. So once you really get them rolling, it isn't that difficult. The main problem is that the visitors that come from one group to the other are usually the most socially awkward and fit in least well in their home group. So they don't do well as ambassadors. So it makes more friction. And some of it's geek stuff. Like everyone always picks within geek circles, picks on the furries as being sort of the bottom of the food chain. But furries are amazing. Furry Twitter is super woke. People should not pick on them because bless I'm sorry, those I'm kids. Sorry, what? Furries, you know, the people that dress up in the mascot costumes. Furries, yeah. Everybody in geek circles loves to pick we'll on furries. This is new to me. <laughs> and in sword okay. arts, we love to pick okay. on larks. Um, uh, okay, uh, hang on. So, so hang on. Just because not everyone is um, American and, and swims in certain circles. So furries are people who like to dress up in like furry mascot suits. Yeah. And apparently in geek culture, that is that is sort of... They are, Everybody they feels are they're better than the furries. They yes, they're, they're very mocked. And they should not be. Um, okay. And sword things... 
It's LARP, is it? Okay. Yeah, but really LARP when... LARP the fairies of the sword world. Okay. <laughs> but when you actually talk to people who are both in HEMA and the SCA, everyone does something else. Like they do also a LARP. They are in both a HEMA and a WMA club, uh, or they do lightsaber, or they do other reenactment. I don't know that many people only do one thing. They just pretend that there is a little more purity than there is. Okay. Now, personally, um, I have no problem with any of you know, anyone who's swinging swords around in any context. I'm perfectly happy with that, so long as it's if they're representing it to the public, they're representing it honestly. That's the only thing I care about, right? So, so trading exactly. standards, as it were. It's like, you know, if you, say you're teaching, if you say you're teaching a medieval martial art, it should come from medieval sources. It shouldn't be something you got out of a Conan movie, for instance, right? But if you're right. doing, you know, I want to fight like Conan and this is how me and my friends fight like Conan, that's fine. Um, right, stage combat is its own art. Own, right. Um, but personally, the only sword world I'm in at all and have ever been is the historical martial arts side of things. I did do some reenactment early on, but only because that was the only place I could find other people who did who carried swords. Um, so I think I may be an exception to your general rule, but um, although I see the places you get out to, <laughs> how do you mean? Well, like what? Um, w the the culture at WMAW and at Sword Squatch, a lot of people would find them wildly different. Oh, sure. But what I'm doing in both of those places is exactly the same. Yes. Okay. Um, so what culture are you trying to create at Lord Baltimore's Challenge? Well, I think um, emphasis on learning, most especially, um, is that to keep focus on what we're trying to study with the historic martial arts. I think trying to keep that historic in the martial arts and trying to make a warm, uh, welcoming environment for people to do that study and display their skills. Okay. And how successful do you think it is? Well, certainly way more people come than we ever expected. I mean, this year we thought would be a tiny year because we only at the last minute decided to go ahead uh, because of pandemic things. And it looked like the pandemic had never happened. Um, this year, because we dropped yeah. Sword and Buckler, we had to Everyone got COVID. <laughs> This year. Uh, yeah. Like so, did, did you read? Like, I did. Um, um, yes, you did. And you know, I was listening to your podcast in preparation for this, and I listened to your interview with Neil Stevenson. And oh, it yeah. occurs to me that you may very well have brought me Neil Stevenson's COVID. So I would like to say, no, that's not possible. I would appreciate an autograph instead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but but actually, that isn't that isn't possible because the incubation time is was too long. All right. But you went from there to it's, Wisconsin. I was, you saw I was, more COVID people. <laughs> outside and downwind. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. Our COVID tourist. <laughs> I, honestly, 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 I think, I think where the, where the COVID came from was almost certainly airplanes. Yeah. I mean, I was our, traveling. Our longest I was traveler got in, sick first. Honestly, our, our, the people that came yeah, the longest distance got, got sick first. Yeah. And the thing is, I would I'd put the mask on when I left the house and take it off 24 hours later when I got to where I was going. And I was pretty much the only person on the airplane and pretty much the only person in any of the many airports I was going through that was masked up. 
it was like I mean, COVID had never I'm happened. giving you a hard weird. time, but that new strain, it was happening to everyone where their precautions had been effective for the last, you know, two years. But suddenly that new strain with everyone yeah. going not masked on the airplanes, a lot of pretty careful people got very sick. Yeah, it was very annoying. But anyway, totally worth it. I mean, yeah, the event I was so a good. good. Time. Spending a week in bed <laughs> after it was worth it. <laughs> and it did make me brave enough to go to Penzik this year because I just had COVID. So, you know, what else was going to happen? So, <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Now, so tell me about getting somebody else's vision to happen. I just always really enjoy that uh, because I always think I don't always have a great creative vision, but I love to solve problems. And when I see people with great ideas, they're just not sure how to get all the way to fruition. I love to be able to help with that and see them really get those ideas done, whether uh, it's LBC or whether like uh, after the first year, I, I spent some time helping Tanya with Fect Yeah for a while. Um, and especially as we've seen that it's easy to burn out when you're running really big events to help people get started running small events that will grow is, I think, so important to the community. Okay, what exactly do you do? Well, for me, mostly the practical nuts and bolts thing, like um, are there scoreboards? Are there pencils? Do we have enough volunteers to staff all the things? Uh, you know, the physical items that we need for that day, uh, the general hype team for uh, the rest of our crew. I believe strongly in running events with a, a more lateral committee, because I think for longevity, it really helps people not feel um, too abused and burnt out. Is there something like particularly satisfying about getting somebody else's vision to work? Well, I tend to think most that um, I'm surrounded by so many brilliant people with so many good ideas that I was like, why do I need to spend time on things that I'm not even sure how much I love myself when I can just pick up these wonderful ideas that all these people around me have and help them get them to happen. That, that gives me a lot of joy. Okay. So what events have you, have you midwife from behind the scenes? Well, let's see. I helped at our home club. I helped Brian a lot with bar fight because, well, we wanted to fight in bars. Um, uh, Brian. Uh, what is bar fight? Tell us about bar well, fight. we just um, take a bar and everybody shows up with their gear and you find a partner and you agree on a, a rule set and a weapons form with your partner and you take the center of the uh, bar and fight for a few minutes and then you do all your drinking after your fencing is done. So you're actually fencing in thought, bars, in actual bars. You know, an actual bar. We just thought it would be really That's fun cool. to fence in a pub, you know. <laughs> That is and I just and think, do you have any trouble getting people who own these pubs to, to let you do it? No, they think it's hilarious. Plus, you know, they realize that uh, uh, it's, especially if we come on a slow night or a slow time of year, you know, we make it up in uh, the bar bill at the end, by the end of the night. Uh, and then in our region, <laughs> we had a, a little wrestling series. Um, we're really blessed in the Northeast to have such a density of fencers that even relatively niche things can get people to come to them. So we had a, a three, three series um, wrestling in the fall before uh, the pandemic. And that was super fun. And I mostly staffed that for the organizers. 
like I said, we did, did some stuff with Factual Fect- yeah, Frisbee one year when um, Bill and Yolanda were not having the best time. A couple of us stepped in and made the rest of the event go. I mean, at this point, there's just so oh, many. I, I just have a tournament in the in a box that I just throw all my things in the car, and I'm like, "Come on, kids, let's have a tournament." Sorry, who are Bill and Yolanda? Um, Bill Frisbee, uh, who ran, had run a school in New Hampshire for quite some time, and they ran a really lovely outdoor camping event in New Hampshire in August that a lot of us in the Northeast really enjoyed. So, a year when they were feeling um, stressed and had too many home life problems to pull it off. We said, well, we all want to go camping and fence, so let's do it anyway. Okay. Um, and am I right in thinking you were involved in uh, Kaya's Big Gay Sword Day? Oh, oh yeah. That's my, that is because that's the kind of thing that happens when people on the internet make me mad because someone suggested okay, on a large online forum that wouldn't it be great to have, um, a queer-centered sword event. And wow, so many hateful people just poured about why this was a terrible idea and totally unacceptable and so all manners of awful. And I was just exhausted. I did not want to fight with these people. And so I thought about what I wanted to do. And what I thought was, well, I guess we're making a queer sword event. And then Kaya wanted to make a queer sword event. So I sent Kaya money other people got other people I knew to send Kaya money and Kaya, well, Kaya Tan so had a big gay sword day. And then a few years later, there was a second one um, and a third held in Texas. So I think sometimes the trolls on the internet don't realize that uh, when they get really, really aggravating, it, it just makes us create the thing they least want to see. <laughs> yeah see i i can understand why certain people wouldn't want to go to a big gay sword day because they may feel that's just not their thing but I, I don't i don't understand why anyone would think that it shouldn't happen like, I, why not neither do i i mean in even with Fectio, we like tanya got criticism so many times about that and and the thing about Fectio is it is open to anyone to attend, but they need to be comfortable that it is centered on women and gender mi- and gender minorities. Um, the tournaments themselves are um, only for those people, but the rest of the event, the workshops, the staffing, I mean, probably at any given year, half of the attendees were not uh, women or gender minorities, but they were people who were comfortable right. with that being the focus of the event. Right. Yeah, I, 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 I totally see why people want to run events like that. And I totally see why people of a particular demographic would want to spend time at an event where they are the norm, not the exception. Um, I, I just don't understand why anyone would not want that to occur. It's like, it's like I thinking, don't really the only thing that so should that's... ever be shown on TV are the things I want to watch. It's just like, why, why would you think that way? It doesn't make sense. And it's why I didn't think there was anything to be gained by arguing with them. I just thought, well, better we just make it happen. <laughs> absolutely um, and then we were all okay. happier so, now, <laughs> yeah so um you in your in the introduction i introduce you as a sword mum, and i have an idea of what that probably is but could you just tell us what a sword bun is and does well at any given event i'm the one that has spares of everything will tell you to drink water and not to be a dumbass so okay 
and this sort of ended up happening because I had my actual child at sort events. Um, and okay. at the time I really didn't know many other people were actually fencing competitively alongside their own kid. Um, my child Juniper started fencing in open steel long sword at 14. So it meant when I was at class or an event, I was already taking care of one kid. What's a couple more? So I was used to, I always had extra thing like extras of everything. Cause there's always two of us. So I always had stuff in my bag and, oh, we were having so many new people. I think that's one of the things that people from the SCA appreciate when they've come over to HEMA is how generous we are with our time and our equipment that when someone, um, is, there has a gear failure and needs assistance that we're a culture that tries to fix that. Probably the other thing that I have done a few times as a sword mom is when someone takes a bad hit uh, at an event and they are medically cleared as not having a concussion, but I notice that they are not themselves. I am that friend who will tell them that their fencing should really be done that day. Uh, I think more people are trying to do that and it is often being the unpopular friend, but sometimes it needs to happen because the person who has the concussion can't always be the one to recognize that they're not uh, behaving normally. Well, yeah, if you're behaving abnormally because you've been hit in the head, you are the last person to notice it. Yeah. I mean, I have sort of leaned into the other, like the funniest thing to ever happen when Juniper was fencing is once Juniper was one that got a kind of a hard hit. And so people came over to tell me and I was fencing in my own pool. So I went over to look, take a look at Juniper all in my gear and Juniper's opponent. I've never seen a person look so terrified. I'm sure he thought <laughs> I was then going to fence him. And Juniper was fine. And it was just, you know, Juniper was a small person. It was fine. No concussion. But that, that poor opponent, <laughs> I've never seen a man look so scared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do not want to mess with a sword, mum. That's for certain. Yeah, I mean, especially I was—I just came right out of the ring in my own gear over to that next ring, and I think that was not what he was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so so concussion is a problem with all contact sports, and we've actually like we various people on the show have have talked about it before um but what is your take on the problem of concussion in historical martial arts well i think one of the things we need to do is just keep paying attention to the knowledge as it is constantly evolving i'm sure you've probably had some people on who um really study a lot in this area but when i came back to this you know i hadn't done competitive sports since i was a very young woman. So I started listening to people who were familiar with our sport uh, talk about the current research in the field and finding out things like it's defined by cognitive symptoms and not physical symptoms, which makes a lot of what we train people about how to do field assessments not at all helpful. Um, and, you know, Juniper a few years ago had a concussion, a very severe concussion that was not from fencing. It was from a minor car accident. And uh, he lost most of his last year of high school and had physical, uh, emotional, cognitive symptoms. And so it was very serious. And so he's been a little reluctant to return to fencing, but it definitely kept me paying attention to this. I mean, in American football, um, they're doing things like... uh, not 
doing full contact at every practice, saving a lot of the hard hits for game day only. Or even the pro ball this year in American football is going to be flag football so that there is not the additional physical risk to these professional players. Um, I think from the concussion perspective, that's kind of huge. Okay, could you just explain what pro football and flag football are? Well, professional football in American, uh, as an American sport, is full contact. There's tackling and there's a lot of head-to-head contact. Uh, Flag football is exactly the same game. It's just instead of tackling other people, you pull a ribbon out of their waistband. So it's played by the same rules. Yes, the same rules, but no contact. Uh, A lot of professional American football players who have children are being more public about the fact that they keep their own children out of tackle football uh, until they are grown and only let them play uh, flag football as young children. Okay, but uh, but the professional football players, adults, they're playing full contact all the time, right? They're not doing flag They play football. full contact all the time. It's just this year with this strange move, there's a, at the end of the season, there's a sort of a exhibition called the Pro Bowl. And, you know, we're getting into a level of football that I really don't understand. But there, so they have this okay. exhibition at the end of the season. And this year they changed it to flag football because if you get heavily injured during an exhibition that impacts you physically it impacts you financially it impacts your team you know what if you get a severe injury that goes into the next season so i think there was a lot of um complaints by the players about their injury risk and they moved to flag football for the pro bowl and i just think from the concussion awareness perspective this is it's it's a very interesting move yeah absolutely um so what do you think we should be doing in historical martial arts to prevent concussions? Well, to prevent concussions, I think one of the things when the last time I had a seminar from someone who does a lot of um, concussion research was that we do believe that uh, neck strengthening exercises are protective. Um, I think yep. we still have a way to go and research about the kinds of masks or helms that are most useful. Um mm-hmm. Trying not to routinely take hard hits. By by that, I mean everybody wants to fence full speed sometimes. It's part of this art. We all enjoy it. But um, think about how often during your week you're doing that. And if you are leaving your practice every week with a headache, you should maybe take a look at that. Um, and if you are a big person and don't leave your practice every week at, with a headache, but smaller people in your club are, maybe a discussion needs to happen about intensity during practice. Uh, I also have what is an unpopular opinion in some circles that we should continue to put tips on swords. Uh, of course. A lot of, a lot of people Why think that, that because some people think that um, the tips will make the swords more sticky, which will make force more on the head and increase concussion. <laughs> and I have okay. not seen this in practice. First of all, uh, tell you what, I, let me tell you something I have seen in practice. Hang on. I have twice seen an untipped sword, sorry, three times seen an untipped sword go through protective equipment and through somebody's skin and sent them to the ER. Three oh, times. Yeah. I nah. have a million on Spoils of War, uh, which I helped to admin on on uh, Facebook. We have a litany of pictures of hand entries. Uh, there have been several torso entries. The thing that really worries me that we don't yeah. talk about a lot is that uh, several people that I know have had a very sc- scary situation 
where an untipped sword has gone under the bib of a fencing mask and slid above the neck protection along the jawline, which is uncomfortable close to many arteries. And if you have it happen, it's terrifying. And so I think I am very concerned about concussion, but I am also concerned that someone not die. And I think that seeing that situation has happened often enough. And when the, the profile of the tip is so small, it's almost impossible to protect human joints effectively and still be able to move like we need to move for our art that Yes, I even made a meme about it on the internet because of my we should all tip our swords opinions. <laughs> Honestly, I, I am entirely in favor of tipping swords. And I mean, not all of the swords on the rack behind me have tips on, but then not all of the swords on the rack behind me are blunt. So, but yeah, right. all of my blunt training swords have tips. And honestly, the- I wouldn't I wouldn't offend someone who didn't have a tip on their sword because I don't particularly I don't want to have a sword inside me. Then... T- the other thing is that when I talked to that researcher um, who specializes in concussion, her point was that when you take a straight in thrust, which is the thing that people who object to tips uh, most often think about, it is uncomfortable. It can strain your neck muscles. It can give you whiplash feelings. But at the same yeah. point, the human body is meant to move in that way. Like we can nod our heads. So straight forward and straight back is a safer kind of movement. The other movements that we take, asymmetric uh, blows, side of the head blows, crushing from the top, those I see much more associated with concussion than straight in thrusts. So, yeah, so I'm not buying the poll where we, we were, I think it's aesthetic, the not wanting to tip your swords. Yeah, and I, I, th- I think there's a lot of that too. And But I think fundamentally we shouldn't be using like, proper weighted swords with fencing masks because that's not what they're designed for. Yeah, I really think that in the long run... So go ahead. Yeah, I think in the long run, we are going to come up with a different uh, mask or helmet situation. Yeah, and already we did. I mean, Terry Tyndall invented a very, very good alternative to the fencing mask about, must be 17 years ago now. I've certainly had mine for a very long time. Yeah, I have one of his, and I've had an armor make me one with a perf plate front. Um, and then uh, who's that other um, group that makes a WMA mask? There are a couple of solutions out there. Uh, they're a little bit harder to take on and off, So, but mine has a removable faceplate, and so that's helpful. I don't have to take right. off the entire mask. I can just pop the faceplate. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and how difficult it is to get on and off. I mean, unless it requires like two squires. I mean, if you could do it yourself in under a couple of minutes, then I don't see yeah. why it's even an issue. It's nice to um, get it open enough for water on a, on a performance day. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Fair. Actually, my friends at London um, many moons ago had this extraordinary fencing mask that had the basically the same sort of shape. It was more covered more area but same sort of shape as a as a motorcycle helmet and the front visor piece actually flipped up like a motorcycle visor and so you could get access to your face for water or whatever and then just flip it down and you were having to sort of clip it in place and you're good to go but they they were making those themselves and they were really really good but they never got into production i don't think so i think it's going to take a little while to pick up what we're really going to settle on and is going to 
get more of a foothold. But I think that's the direction we're probably going to have to move in. Because we all love yeah, this and we all want to keep doing this. Right. But there, there's been this extraordinary amount of effort being put into um, hand protection, which to my mind is completely silly because hand protection was a solved problem 500 years ago with finger steel gauntlets, which give all the protection you could possibly want and better protection than anything else on the market. And if they're made properly, you get all this flexibility and everything. I mean, you, they do everything that the plastic ones do um, better. And, and all of this research and all this development has gone into making these plastic gauntlets when they should have been working on helmets. Yeah, I mean, orthopedic surgery is pretty straightforward, even if you do something very bad to your hands. Um, brains are very hard. And I know a lot of us work with uh, our hands at a keyboard, but um, it is much, much harder to work when your brain is injured. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know why this... Hey, do you have any thoughts on why all of this development has been put into the solved problem of hand protection as opposed to the unsolved problem of head protection? Well, I think a lot of people early on the HEMA side saw basically garbage metal hand protection and it worried them. They're like, oh, we can do better and plastic is okay. safer. Da, 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 da. But I I now wish I was wearing my my spring steel finger gauntlets so I could just click them um, with a attitude on the podcast. But I certainly <laughs> made my choice a while ago and have been pretty happy. You know, they are not 100% protection, but there have been a few times that I know that if I hadn't no. had them, uh, I would have broken something. Right. And nothing is 100%. Yeah. I mean, we take we take risk willingly in this. We know that the goal here is not 100% safety. This is harm reduction. We just want it to to avoid the worst of the worst from happening. Right. Yeah. And and so also more particularly for me, I get people to put protection on when I'm fencing them so I can hit those bits. Right. Exactly. So, you know, if you're wearing gauntlets, I can strike at the hands. If you're wearing head protection, I can strike at the head. If you're not wearing gauntlets or head protection, I can't strike at those places. So to my mind, that's that's why we we gear up is so that our partner can actually hit us. Yep. I mean, it's very period to make the rules to avoid head hits and hand hits. So you know that they were thinking about it back then, too. So what about we've discussed concussion and equipment and whatnot but what about community safety more widely what do you think well you know over the years um i think especially starting uh as a young woman in swords um in the bad old days uh i've seen and experienced some uh terrible things in a variety of subcultures and how they're handled you know historically has been very poorly um, if a perpetrator has social power, uh, people they harmed are told to just deal with it or leave. And many of us left. If the perpetrator didn't have power, sometimes um, the social or other consequences for them uh, were severe. But I was always concerned because if someone gets removed from a community, they just go off to harm people in other places um, and in new spaces. And sometimes, um, Groups I'm in have been the recipients of bad actors from other organizations. And after the BLM and um, abolition movements happening in the United States, I started doing a little bit more thinking about um, how we manage that within 
our communities. Um, when I start listening to people doing work on transformative or restorative justice and how that applies to us. So I am in my very baby beginnings about thinking and reading on the subject, especially because um, uh, like you, I'm sort of from a different era about how we dealt with that kind of conflict. And what I see us doing is duplicating problems we have in the larger culture and that punitive justice is not working in these cases. Um, it just makes more conflict. And I don't think any of the members of the community are any safer. Um, I mean, safety is a hilarious thing to be talking about because what we do is swords, but, um, but still you understand but um, the larger point. There's, yeah, there, there are risks that you have consented to, like getting hit in the head a bit harder than intended, and risks that you have not consented to, like getting, for instance, um, I don't know, felt up by someone when you were wrestling them. Those right, are two very exactly. different things. Exactly. Um, and it isn't unique to our community. Like, this is the kind of thing that happens right. in any um, in any community and everywhere. And so I'm still trying to think of ways that we can make structures to handle both people that are an active threat, people that have opinions that might lead us to believe they could become an active threat in the future, um, how we can support the people that feel threatened by them. But, but I think what we all want to see is a change in behavior. So just removing people from our community doesn't make the change that we want to see. Um, we want to see satisfying consequences and changes. Um, and we don't want to see continued harm in our community. Um, so I don't have any really good answers, but I've been starting to do a lot more reading and thinking. And probably on my bedside table right now, I have Dean Spade's Mutual Aid, Adrienne Marie Brown's We Will Not Cancel Us, and Shauna Potter's um, very practical book called uh, Making Spaces Safer. And I don't have a whole lot of criticisms of these books yet, but I think all of us in leadership roles keep returning to these topics and are not fully satisfied with how we're handling these issues. You know, and then we've all been distracted by pandemics and the world being on fire. Uh, but I think the changes that are happening uh, in harm reduction and restorative justice in the larger world are maybe tools that we could carry into our own clubs to try to make things better, um, not just for people who are potentially victimized, but also to try to encourage more positive behavior by people that might be a problem. Yeah, I think it's people are responsive to their environment. And there are some people who are going to be nice no matter what happens, and some people who are going to be predators no matter what happens. But I think a lot of people can become predatory if the environment allows it, but if the environment didn't allow it, it wouldn't happen. Yeah. And like how we can structure things to keep encouraging people towards positive behavior. Um, I right. am like the least philosophical person maybe that you would ever meet. I, I really am more in the I'll hand you duct tape um, department, but because I like seeing problems solved, there's no way that you can see what happens without wanting to figure out a way that we can do better. And I really want, to hear more from probably newer voices in our community that may have more experience at how to handle this um, from outside and be more willing and flexible within our own organizations to implement what might look like some radical rethinking about how we manage ourselves and the people we're responsible for. Yeah, it's, it's easy to see when somebody is fencing 
in an unsafe way and easy to see when I don't know a big strong fencer is is victimizing a younger smaller fencer or whatever um, but the kind of the kind of behavior we're talking about is very difficult to see it generally um, so what do we do to make it more visible yeah and there's such a range of behaviors that we might want not one in our organizations but they're they're not illegal they're just not how we want our community members to treat each other. And so, yeah, um, I don't really have any answers here. I just am really interested in hearing from people um, who have more experience at this and how to really do it. You know, Kaya Tan's book um, talked, gave some basics about how to have some behavior policies in your clubs. But I think that, I think our culture at large is also trying to say maybe we need a bigger rethinking of this in general. Um, and maybe the place to start with it is in small microcosms like our clubs and events. Yeah. Okay. A lot to think about. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it's, so it's sorry to, to lay all that on you with not, not huge amazing no, okay. answers, but I'm hoping other people are doing <laughs> the okay. same thinking that I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would, this is not the first time this topic has come up on the show. So I know other people are thinking about it, um, but it's one of those one of those issues that it's it's partly club culture, it's partly human nature, um, it can partly be fixed by better reporting procedures, better yeah. disciplinary procedures. Um, well, see that gets into that, one of the things. Yeah. But some of the things we tend to implement are things that are highly punitive. And so that's what I'm saying. Sometimes it's not, it doesn't resolve things. All it does is maybe remove someone from our community to go out and do it again somewhere else. And that's what I was like, could we be better? Like there's some people where that's the only solution, but I think the more rigid so, our structures become, the more it ends up being our solution to everything. Okay. So what are the alternatives? Well, Gosh, I mean, I guess some people use a lot of meetings <laughs> where they really talk about like what would what would what would harm reduction look like? What would restorative justice look like? What would uh, make the situation seem safer to someone who's been harmed? What would help us see someone has a is making a real effort to change their behavior? I mean, I think in a smaller way, that's what I look for is if someone has seemed remorseful for something they did and then shown a track record of trying to change their behavior. In some cases, to me, that is someone that I would allow to remain in my community. But that's really tough. And I don't, I don't know. I have a feeling all I'm going to do is make people mad. But it's just <laughs> that's something that's not working in all the ways that we're trying right now. <laughs> and it's like, so if we have like rigid reporting and a lot of scrutiny, it doesn't seem to be making it doesn't seem to be solving all the problems. You know what I mean? It is a step. And I mean, sure. a step a step forward for, you know, for me from 30 years ago where we just didn't talk about it. And if it happened, there was nothing to be done. But I think we can set our goals a little higher. Yeah. And compared to this, things like, you know, preventing concussion is relatively straightforward. Well, relatively, but um, the Venn diagram there is interesting. Because, you know, with concussion, some of the things that happen are emotional volatility, impulsivity. Um, when you look at people who do commit crime, many of them have a history of concussion. Um, a lot of the um, emotional symptoms that you see in 
victims of domestic violence um, come from concussion. So maybe this isn't as exclusive to each other as we think. That's an interesting point. I have not thought of that. Huh. I think we need to do a lot uh, more thinking about it because when we talk, we look at uh, <laughs> problems with professional athletes, some of their behavior is culture. Some of their behavior is having a lot of money at a young age. Some of their behavior is probably from concussion. And how to navigate that, I'm just not, I'm not sure we're there yet. But I, it's, it's those things we talk about in the early hours of the morning sometimes. What is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? Oh, well, you know, the last time that we talked in person, you told me I should go try cryotherapy mm -hmm. for all of my crazy body stuff. And so I've been reading about it, okay. and I have, you will not be surprised, decided that you are right. Uh, and I have picked out a place, <laughs> but, I have not, but I have not booked an appointment. So that is the next thing on my list to go do, is to try seeing how cold will do, um, even though all of my person is objecting to this because I am not a mermaid. I'm a manatee. I like warm water. So this idea of cold water... I think it's crazy. I live in the 21st century so that I have indoor heating and hot water. <laughs> but yes, I think that but it could there... fix this. Yes, I think it could fix this. So I really am going to try it. Okay. Now, okay. Firstly, cryotherapy, they don't use water. It's, it's, um, it's basically uh, dry ice. Or something. Yes. Like that. And so these cold boxes. Cold. And I was like the super cold sauna. Yeah. And I, oh, okay. Uh, I just, yeah. I might call and, you from my session to complain about it. <laughs> That's fair. Um, but, but also, you can have like a warm shower afterwards if you want. Oh, and that will be very Nordic, right? Like sauna and then the snow, except right. I'll be doing it in reverse. Yeah, exactly. Um, and now, okay, just. It may be interesting for the average listener who may be going, what the hell are they talking about? Um, let me just justify my advice. Okay. Well, okay. Please, please recap my advice so that, so that it's, it's, I didn't just say, right, what you need to do, Lisa, is you need to jump in cold water and that will fix everything. That isn't well, you're quite gonna, You're going to be my hype team. You're going to be my hype team here. So explain to me why this is a great thing I should be doing. <laughs> okay. Um, I am not a doctor. I'm not a medical practitioner of any kind. Let me say that first. And even if I was a medical doctor, I'm not your doctor and I'm not any of the listeners doctor either, right? So this is not medical advice. But my feeling is when you have mysterious ailments or ailments that are related to sort of lifestyle and environment, it is simpler, more straightforward to rather than try and piece out exactly what's happening, because it's it's fantastically complicated. Anything to do with the immune system is inherently fantastically complicated, right? So um, in the same way that, you know, finding out that you're deficient in this very specific mineral and giving you that specific supplement is super hard and it requires modern technology and stuff, but eating a varied and healthy diet is much easier and more straightforward and will probably solve that same problem. Um, the, the cryotherapy thing, what it seems to do is reset your immune system back to it's like its default settings, right? So it's not, it's not treating any specific ailment. It is um, affecting the way your brain can, tells your immune system what to do, right? And it seems to be one of those things where if you have this cold exposure, it does 
good things for things like arthritis and other inflammation-related diseases and autoimmune diseases and whatnot. But it's not a treatment for those things. It is a it is a an environmental trigger that encourages your brain to reset your immune system. Does that make sense? It does, and I will remember this when I am cursing your name in that cold box. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, you might enjoy it. Now, I, I have a, I, I do ice bars and stuff every now and then, and my feeling is, if I get into the cold and it feels, yeah, it feels cold and it's uncomfortable and, and sort of stimulatingly unpleasant, um, when I get out, if I feel um, like energized and hot and my skin flushes and I feel warm, then it was not too much cold and not too cold and that was a good thing and I should carry on and that's fine. But if I get out of it and I feel tired or cold, then I probably shouldn't have gotten into it and I won't go back into it and I will do something sensible to warm up like have a hot bath or have a warm shower or, I don't know, get into bed with extra blankets or whatever, right? So how you respond to it will... um, I see that as a pretty good indication of whether it was a sensible thing to do. So it should make you feel amazing. Okay. Well, I will, I will give you a report after I try it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm I, hearing it. Uh, I did have an, an external idea that wasn't just for me uh, that I haven't tried yet. Okay. And uh, when I was listening to one of your past podcasts, it made me think of it. Is it McBain that had that combination uh, brothel tavern a fencing style? Um, okay. McBain certainly ran prostitutes in the military camps, um, during the, the wars of these late 17th, early 18th century. Some, if it wasn't McBain, someone of that era did have an establishment like that. And I thought that sounded hilarious. And that some 21st century version of that, like, uh, a bar, a play space, fencing space, um, should be my next career. Oh, well... Okay. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I need something favor. to do in retirement. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So, so yeah, having, I mean, traditionally fencing was one of these kind of disreputable pastimes that was associated with all sorts of bad behavior. And yes, in the same way that um, prostitutes often worked in bathhouses, there was usually brothels or whatnot next to a fencing style and possibly even owned by the same person, at least at some points in history, then fencing got all kind of posh and tony in the 19th century. Um, but um, my my main concern is there are all sorts of puritanical laws about making money off immoral earnings and that kind of thing. So how are you going to, how are you going to sidestep the, um, the law when it comes to running a brothel. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to actually be a brothel. It could be a play space. It could be someplace right. people like, I've seen other people rent out places where they go to take their pictures that then they post online. So, you know, there's slightly more reputable ways to spin this. I'm, sh- I'm confident. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, As you know, know like, we yeah, don't always drink all the time. It could be also true, a bookstore and a, a bookstore and a coffee shop. You know, we can combine our vices in any way we want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, well, I think it's a great idea, and and I would I would like to 
like to visit your establishment and perhaps maybe run a class and then have a drink and then um, who knows what may happen after that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so um, am I right in thinking that this is not the way you would choose to spend a million dollars if someone gave you a million dollars to improve historical martial arts worldwide? No, no, that isn't how I would spend a million dollars. Um, you know, because I have to keep to my brand, first of all, mimosas for all my friends, both the alcoholic and non-alcoholic version. Uh, but the rest okay. I really would like to see in concussion research. I know that was probably the predictable answer. But if I had a million dollars to spend, I would like to see uh, more stu- more studies funded um, and ones more targeted on our sport so we don't so we get more specific data on it and aren't just trying to glean what we can from adjacent sports. Okay. So how exactly would you deploy the cash other than the mimosas? That's quite straightforward, but, but um, concussion research is a broad field. I know. And I, you know, I don't know how all this medical grant stuff works. So I'd have to pay someone to figure out how to spend the money, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, we have plenty of people in the historical martial arts world who are medical professionals of one kind or another. So, uh, Yeah, and we are, Hema Alliance is funding right now a small data collection survey uh, in for, for some, not quite concussion, but uh, adjacent data collection. So I think we're all trying to look at how more information on, on force, on injury, will help us all make better decisions, build better gear, and help us just do all that harm reduction while still being able to participate in this stuff we love. Okay. I think that's a, it's a great way to spend the money. Um, do you think it's likely to lead to changes in training, rule set, equipment, or treatment? Um, probably it will not have any impact at all. But, you know, I, for a moment, my, my practical my- pessimism... I think it should be done anyway, but sometimes people will make choices even when uh, the data says otherwise. You know, we, heck, we knew that lead paint, uh, lead in paint was terrible for people for a long, long time. And we knew definitively as early as what, like the 1920s, and we didn't get it out of paint till what, in the United States until the 70s. So even when information is known and risks are known, it doesn't always make change. Yeah, like they figured out that smoking caused lung cancer in the 1950s, and it took over 50 years for smoking to become illegal in public places in, in yeah. Europe. Anyway. So change like is slow, but I think years. the first step is, you know, is increasing our knowledge. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think there's always going to be a problem with historical martial arts as a practice when it comes to concussion. As soon as you have tournaments, you have people who are really yeah. trying to hit each other, um, which is no bad thing. And it's the um, same in any other sport, whether well, it's, you know, rugby or soccer yeah. or, you know. Um, but yeah, also maybe if, if concussion was diagnosed earlier and it was taken more seriously. And so like people, if you had a concussion, you were, for instance, you know, automatically barred from competition for a year, for instance. Uh, it's not fair on the person who just got concussion, so that's not a solution. But something along the lines of, or maybe even have separate tournaments for people who want to avoid concussion that has different rule sets and different equipment. Yeah, yeah. Like when you have a, a large club, 
you always have people in different stages of injury recovery. So at least my home club has done that for a long time, is just had at any one time people participating in different intensity levels uh, because of where their, their physical health is at the time. Yeah, and that, that's entirely normal practice. So maybe if it was just a bit more codified. We just treat it like a normal thing, yeah. Yeah, which of course, actually, I guess the difficulty there is getting people to recognize it as serious as it is, and then also getting people to get it diagnosed. And it doesn't, doesn't help. I mean, in Europe, in Europe, like going to the doctor is basically free. So it's easier, but getting medical attention could be very expensive. Yes. And let me tell you the ethics of worrying that your opponent in a tournament may not have a lot of insurance. And so even if it's unintentional, if my hit um, accidentally injures someone in a way that is uh, financially catastrophic for them, um, it's, it's very concerning. Do you think it would be possible as an event organizer, you've probably looked into this sort of thing, would it be possible for the event to carry its own health insurance? So if someone got injured at a tournament held at Lord Baltimore Challenge, for example, that insurance would cover their medical expenses in America. It is possible, and I have seen it in many years ago. I haven't priced it recently, but more events are asking um people that enter to attest that they do carry their own personal medical insurance. Uh, okay. Because but I think I a never lot of people, not just me, worry about it. Yeah, I, I never go to America without having at least $20 million worth of health insurance just in case. <laughs> right? And I send out this, this, this email to the people who are going to be you know, who are organizing the events where I go to saying, you know, just in case I get bashed on the head and can't tell you about these things, here are my medical insurance details. <laughs> Right. Just just yeah. because America is famous for bankrupting people for having an accident. Yeah. Um, I had a Swedish friend who was in a very horrific car accident years ago in California. And um, it was lucky that at the time he was working for a very deep pocketed tech firm or that would have been horrific. Right. And yeah, so I think the other thing is if the event carried the insurance, the insurance companies would have restrictions on what could and could not be done based on risk. Right. So and they basically would say, no way. <laughs> I think instead they'd be like, nope, nope, uh, no martial arts. <laughs> no, well, no, because martial, martial arts tournaments do have insurance. and, and Yeah, they do. Like even but usually like, it's liability like and not personal injury. Sure. What was the last one you but said? Even, uh, even like heavyweight boxers have insurance. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe I will ask our insurance agent. See what we can find out. Because it, it just it just seems like a, like a a thing that it might encourage safer practice. I mean, really, I'm going to say the answer is single payer healthcare, and that we need systemic change in the United States. But that's a <laughs> <Yeah>. larger issue. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not going to solve that with a million dollars, that's for sure. No, I mean, I, I can't just say socialism. Socialism is the answer. I, you know. <laughs> well you just said it <laughs> well you know <laughs> splendid well thank you so much for joining me today Lisa it's been lovely talking to you okay it's lovely to talk to you too Guy thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lisa you can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast where you'll find transcriptions photos videos and links for this episode 
While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember, the birthday sale, you can use the code GUYTURNS49, that's all capitals, all one word, to get £5 off any of my books at swordschool.shop or 30% off any course at courses.swordschool.com. The code will work until the end of December 2022. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Kane Maxwell about equestrian combat and other things. He has the most interesting answer to the what would you do with a million dollars to help improve historical martial arts worldwide I've come across so far. I'm completely out of left field. You definitely don't want to miss that. So... You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week. Bye.